Welcome, Mosaic. Uh, Y'all can have a seat. My name's Matt, and I work here with families, and we got a whole crew of students walking in. Hi, y'all. Glad to join us tonight. Uh, We're celebrating a baptism in a minute uh, of one of their peers, so they wanted to come watch. Pretty fun. Pretty exciting. Um, 
Uh, if you, this is your first time here, uh, we want to know about it. We want to help you get connected. Uh, the link on the bottom there, I'm new, is the, the tag on the end there. Uh, that's a, a great way to get plugged in here. Uh, second, if you don't know what's going on or you feel like you're out of the loop, a great place to find information is this middle link, the news page on our website. And then finally, the last one here, uh, giving. If you want to figure out how to get, uh, get support of the church and the work here, then you're, you're welcome to go to that link as well. Um, uh, so we use around here a word picture, the, the word picture of mosaic, and it's, it's the, the all are broken, all matter, one gets the glory. All of us broken in sin, and yet all of us matter in, in the coming together and making a picture, a beautiful picture at the hand of, of an artist, the one that we worship, uh, the God Almighty. And so uh, some other word pictures you might be familiar with would be Paul in the scriptures, uses the picture of the body. Uh, and one we might use as we talk together tonight would be uh, the picture of a family. And so what do families do well together? Well, first, uh, they play. And we have a great opportunity to play together, and that's uh, Wednesday night down in Springdale, the swim night. And so I saw a big reaction from this little group here of like, yes, we're doing it. And I know that that's, that probably seems like the target group. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that there will be a lot of people playing and splashing. But if you've just felt disconnected or you want to you wanna be uh, uh, around other people, show up, don't bring a swimsuit, and just walk around on the deck and hang out. It'll be 7.30 in the evening. It should be kind of dusk, beautiful time just to be around one another. So if this sounds like a thing that you're like, not for me, please make it for you. Please show up and make a new friend, meet somebody else, uh, make a new relationship. So that's the first. We want to play together. Uh, the second is that we want to serve together. And uh, we serve one another often in our scattering rhythms, our small groups, and, and, and we meet the needs of people in the body. And so that's things like meal trains. That's things like going and helping somebody who, who just needs a little extra help. Uh, those, those are really excellent opportunities. But the other way we do it is in our gathering. And uh, it takes a lot of hands to do what we do on a campus on a Saturday night. It takes uh, people playing instruments. It takes people uh, making things sound good and look good. It takes people greeting and being the warm face for the first time you come through the door. It takes people to hold babies who are crying. It takes people willing to teach the truth to a third grader. It just takes a lot of people to do this thing we call gathering. And so I wanted to put in front of you some really clear uh, needs. The first was in students on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8.30, they have uh, cell groups. And cell groups are their discipleship communities. They come together in a home, and we need leaders of 6th and 7th grade boys and girls groups. So there's 6th grade boys, 7th grade boys, 6th grade girls, 7th grade girls. We need people that are willing to show up to, to be around middle schoolers and just help them. We provide curriculum. We we arrange for homes, all those things. We just need you and a willing heart to teach truth. And maybe you don't feel like you know enough, and that's fine. Bring that humility. We would love that too. So that's one really concrete need. The second is in the toddler hallway. Now, uh, there's two classrooms. If we had eight people, uh, there's actually eight spots. So if somebody signed up to serve twice a month, that would actually take the eight down to six. So if you serve four times a month, crazy, incredible, that knocks, knocks the number in half. So uh, that's foxes and raccoons. You're welcome to find me or go find Jen after service and let her know. We would love to uh, find a spot for you there. And then the final thing, the most exciting thing that families do together is they celebrate. 
They celebrate. My family growing up, we always went to the Chinese restaurant in Muscatine, Iowa to celebrate. It was the place we went when we got all together. But this is not that. This is even better than Chinese and Muscatine. All right, this is baptism. And so we are celebrating Michael tonight, Michael Hoffman, getting baptized by his dad, Ryan. Go ahead, Ryan. Good evening, Mosaic. Tonight, I have the honor to baptize my firstborn son, Michael Hoffman. These past few years, we've talked a lot about baptism and what it means and what commitment it means to be here to show your profession of faith. It is a great honor that I get to do this in front of everyone here and all of his friends, too. All right, Michael, is it your testimony that you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Thank you. <laughs> All right, then it is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together. I don't belong. Savior, so that being justified by his grace, 
we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't belong to my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever.
Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart.
Jesus, that is our confession tonight, that it is only through you and because of you that we're able to say we have hope. Lord, help us to walk, to run, to stand firmly in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, guys. That was amazing. Thank you so much. We're in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 for our study tonight. And if you've been with us uh, through this study in Hebrews, you've probably noticed um, that we've referred several times to the, the struggles and the persecution that the people who received this letter were enduring. But you know, we don't have to be going through persecution to feel like life is hard. So sometimes we read about the, the specific things that these people are going through and we're going, well, you know, I'm not going through that. So why does my life feel hard? Well, Catherine Hepburn said, life is hard. After all, it's what kills you. Okay, that's a good thought. And one of my favorite quotes from one of the greatest movies of all time, life is pain. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something. The writer of Hebrews doesn't try to deny or diminish the hard things that these people were going through, but he encourages them by shifting the focus or shifting the lens that they view this hardship through. And in the passage that we're going to be walking through tonight, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to kind of just, just kind of move through verses 3 through 17. He tells them that they need to endure it by seeing it as discipline. Endure hardship as discipline. Now, as we start examining this encouragement more, I want to look at, look at one last quote. This one's a little more serious. Ann Byler says, my philosophy is life is hard, but God is good. Try not to confuse the two. Ann introduces a challenge that we face when we have to deal with hard things in life. How can we keep sight of the goodness of God in the middle of painful experiences? One of the struggles we have in our culture, particularly the, the Western culture that we live in and love so much, uh, is that we have been able to eliminate a lot of hardship that used to be a part of normal life. As a result, when we encounter hard things, we assume that we have to make them go away. And we assume that we can make them go away. And when they don't go away, we are often left without any tools to deal with that reality. For example, we've come to expect that when a disease shows up, our medical community will know how to deal with it. And when they don't, we don't know how to respond. So when we get the cancer diagnosis, we assume they're gonna be able to fix it, and sometimes they don't. When the COVID virus showed up, we assumed they'd figure this thing out. They're still figuring it out. And many of us find those kinds of things because of the culture we live in, we find it difficult. We don't know what to do with the hard things that don't or won't go away. A moment of a... Uh, confession of a father. 
I could write a book about all my parenting fails, but one of the big ones that, I, that I've actually apologized to my children for is I didn't teach them very well how to do hard things. And when they hit adult life and the hard things came, every one of them struggled at one point or another trying to figure it out. And I realized we've got to develop the tools to deal with the hard things. In working with global workers, um, one of the things that we've identified that's essential to their ability uh, to stay in difficult places long-term is what we call a theology of suffering. Now, we don't have time to really devote to developing this area, it, 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 but it's an interesting thing to, to really dig into. But essentially, it involves understanding the origin of suffering, God's place in our suffering, and God's work in and through our suffering. So real quickly, the origin of all suffering is sin. But hear this, okay, I want you to listen. Not necessarily your personal sin. Not all suffering is related to something you did wrong. Some suffering is related to something somebody did wrong to you. And some suffering is just because we live in a broken world that has just been infected and affected by sin at every level. But all suffering is rooted in sin. Secondly, God's place in our suffering is that he is over it and he is with us in it. God is over it and he is with us in it. But the part we're gonna focus on most tonight is this last one. We may never know the why of our suffering. And if you have to know why in order to get past it, you're gonna be stuck for most of the rest of your life. You may never know the why of your suffering. But we can be assured that God can and will and does redeem and use every hard thing in life to accomplish his purpose. And his purpose is his glory and our good. So how does God use hard things in our life? Well, first we see in verse seven that God uses hard things to discipline us. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? When we hear the word discipline, uh, we usually have a negative reaction. And there's a reason for that. Over in verse 11, he says that no discipline uh, or that all discipline seems painful for the moment. And we naturally want to avoid pain. And so if we associate discipline and pain, we think discipline's a, a, a kind of a bad thing. But this reaction, this negative reaction to deep discipline actually goes even deeper. Because for many of us, we equate discipline with punishment. So we think that if we're being disciplined, we must have done something wrong. So let's unpack that a little more. In verse, beginning in verse five, he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. In this passage, it talks about being disciplined, being reproved, and being chastised. These are three different actions that come under the larger umbrella of discipline. 
The word discipline in these verses refers to directive action, to instruct and to develop someone in the way they should go. The word reproof is corrective action, pointing out when we're going the wrong direction and pointing us back to the right path. So discipline is directive. This is what you ought to do. This is what you need to do. This is the path that you need to be walking on. And then when we get off the path, hey, wait a minute, that's not the direction you need to go. You need to come back this way. And so there's the corrective action. And then he talks about chastisement. Chastisement is consequential action. This is when we've ignored the direction and the correction and we've continued to go down the wrong path and, and we're allowed then to feel the weight of the consequences of that. And the purpose of chastisement is to put a roadblock in front of us that would cause us to recognize the, and repent of our rebellious life. So while punishment can be a part of discipline, chastisement can be a part of discipline, the purpose and the goal of discipline is training and development in righteousness. And he emphasizes this point by going on to say that any parent who loves their child will practice this kind of discipline that directs, corrects, and sometimes lets the consequences weigh on their children. So what does he tell us? So when we feel the discipline of God, when we feel this, this pressing of God using these hard things, he says we can know that it's driven by and rooted in his love for us as his children. The fact that God disciplines us, he uses these hard things to shape us, to discipline us, to point us in the right direction is actually proof that he cares, not that he doesn't care. So let me make a side note here. When you read this passage, he goes on in verses eight and nine, um, and 10 and talks about how that we have earthly fathers that have disciplined us. When you read this passage about fathers disciplining their children, don't press the analogy too hard. He's talking about the ideal father. And we all know that many parents, the one in front of you included, fall far, far short of that ideal. So if you had an abusive parent, it's, it's possible that you'll read this and you'll just disconnect from the point that he's making because you cannot imagine the, the correlation that he's talking about between a good father and a good God. And so let me encourage you to sit down and read it again and do so thinking of what a good parent ought to be and realize that it is the love of God that disciplines us using these hard things in life. The second thing we see is that God will use this discipline through hardship to form us as his disciples. He uses the discipline through hardship to form us as his disciples. We're told in, in, the, in a couple of places in scripture that God's purpose and plan for those that he has redeemed is to conform them, to conform us to the image of Christ, to develop within us the character of Christ. 
And so this, this discipline through hardship forms us as his disciples. It produces what is good for us by making us holy and yielding the fruit of righteousness. Let's take a moment and see what this fruit might look like. Kind of dig a little deeper in, in these next few verses. First, we read in verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What does this fruit look like? It looks like righteous peace. We're told to strive for peace with everyone. It literally means aggressively pursue, chase it down. It's kind of a, a, an oxymoron. How do you peacefully strive? How do you aggressively pursue peace? I could probably camp here for a long time in light of today's culture. But let me just say, I think we as God's people, we as God's people, not those guys, us guys, we need to be reminded that God has called us to be a people of peace. And in our standing for truth and our standing against evil, we are never given permission to be hateful and hurtful towards other people. Now, our goal is not peace at any cost. But we're told that living peaceably with others is more important than our personal gain or comfort. We're even told that at times it's more important than our own personal rights. Scripture also tells us here to aggressively pursue holiness. So this, this uh, strive for or chase after, it, it applies not only to the peace, but also for the holiness and so he tells us we need to aggressively pursue holiness. Recently, I was reading through the book of Isaiah, um, and I was struck by how many times justice and righteousness are connected in that book. So the next time you kind of browse through and, you, and you're reading in Isaiah, just, just notice that. How many times justice and righteousness are connected in the book of Isaiah? As disciples of Jesus... As followers of Jesus, as he's forming us, what he, what he wants us to know is that whatever we do, even in seeking justice, we are required to do it in righteousness. In fact, any effort towards good that is done without righteousness, I'm gonna pause and, re and repeat that. Any effort we do towards good that is done without righteousness, God says is illegitimate. We do good and we do it righteously. We do good and we do it with a character of peace and holiness. The second thing that he tells us this, this fruit that he's producing in us looks like, it looks like living in grateful grace. In verse 15, it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springs up. Bitterness comes from two places. Number one, from a lack of gratitude for what we have, and number two, from a lack of forgiveness for what has happened to us. When we're going through hard times, 
it is easy and even natural to focus on what we have lost or the pain of the experience. But what he's saying to us is if, if that becomes the focus of how we see our lives, that, that focus on the loss and the pain will give rise to a bitterness. And this bitterness will invade, infect, and influence every part of your life. So we learn to let God develop in us through these hard things a life and an attitude of grateful grace. Thankful for the blessings of God. Thankful for the goodness of God. Walking in the forgiveness of God and offering that same forgiveness to others. The third thing he says this fruit looks like, he says, it looks like living for something greater than our own pleasure. In verses 16 and 17, he brings out the example of Esau. And Esau, we're told, gave up his future blessing for a pleasant pleasure, a present pleasure. He came in and he was starving to death. He was about to die. Uh, and you know, if I can't get something to eat, I'm gonna faint. I'm just gonna fall over and die. That's basically what he said. And so his brother, who was not a very nice guy, said, hey, I've got some soup for sale. You give me your birthright, I'll give you a bowl of soup. And Esau, in his moment living, says, well, if I, if I die, what do I need with a birthright? And if I don't get a bowl of soup, I'm gonna die. And so he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And he says to us, don't be an Esau. If we dig down even deeper in the, the picture we have of Esau from the stories of Genesis, we see that he was a person who lived for the experience of the moment. His priorities centered around what he could have or what he could feel or what he thought he needed right now. That was the characteristic of his life. The idea of saying no to the present for a greater good later never entered his mind. And God uses hard things in life to help us develop a long view of life, a view that puts everything into an eternal perspective. Instead of being like Esau, God uses these hard things to make us like Christ that we're told uh, in the first part of chapter 12. He looked past the hardship and the pain of the moment to the promise of joy on the other side of the suffering. God's using hard things to produce the fruit, the character of Jesus in us. And then finally, God takes those disciples he is forming and he uses his disciples to carry out his mission. In chapter 13, uh, in verses 20 and 21, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, Will Blanchard is gonna, he's gonna talk to us more about this passage next week, so I'm not gonna dig too deep into that. But here's what I want you to know. God's plan and purpose for those who follow Jesus 
is to be a part of and even instrumental in his carrying out his plan of rescue, redemption, and restoration of a broken people living in a broken world. God uses hard things in us to be a blessing of grace to others. Now, I mentioned earlier about how our global workers have to have a solid theology of suffering. So if you guys want to come up, I've asked uh, David and Monica Taylor, who live and serve in Turkey, to join me to talk about how these things uh, work themselves out in their lives. So while we get the stools, I want you to say, Merhaba. Okay, Merhaba. You just said welcome to them, by the way. All right, David, Monica, welcome. Hoshkel Deniz. We are so good, glad to have you here. Um, one of the reasons I wanted them to share, and, and I'm going to turn it to them, is as I've gotten to know them, I have watched them walk through some really hard things. And I've seen the fruit that I just talked about from, from Hebrews developing in their hearts, in their lives. And I've seen fruit come out of that that has been a blessing to other people. People have come to Christ because of their faithfulness and hardship. So I just asked them, and, and David, I'll let you start. Why don't you share with us some of the things that God has used, hard things, uh, to, to, to shape you and use you? Well, thank you. First, I just want to say thank you. It is an honor to be here again. It was about... 11 years ago, I sat in a seat right over there and wept as this church prayed uh, for Turkey, and I had made my decision there, a resolve, we're going. Um, and so here we are 10 years later, um, and God has been faithful. And as I talk about suffering, we have seen uh, a lot, but I want to share two primary ways in which God has used suffering and hardships in our lives, and one is for the sake of overseas missions, so that people can hear the gospel, and the other is so that he could personally transform us into the image of Christ. There's been a verse, several verses that have been such a comfort to me, it's from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, but in this it says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. And this suffering in the context of that book is not just Christ's cross, but all of his suffering for doing what is right. Later it says, don't suffer as a murderer or an evildoer or a thief, but if anybody suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It requires suffering to do missions overseas. Part of God's international church planting strategy is to form local men and women of God in and through suffering. We live in an absolutely gorgeous place in Fethiye, Turkey, and you are all welcome to come visit us. 
but Fetier has been far from glamorous. Missionaries get sent off with support and joy and prayer, and they are rejected with much opposition. Turkey doesn't want us. I remember when we first opened our church building after many, many, many years, and I got on the front page of the paper, and it said, shameful, missionaries have come to our city. And then it said, today it will be a church, tomorrow it will be a bell tower, and in the years to come, they'll steal our wife and children. I got more death threats during that time than I could count. There was a person who held a knife recently to one of our members' throats and said, I've reserved this for your pastor. Many people have wished I was never born. I have been mocked, insulted, opposed more than we can count. I remember when I used to do sermon prep, I used to close all of the window shades in our house or in the office because I was afraid that a sniper would kill me as I planned. I have ministered almost completely alone for nine years, and many of our closest co-laborers and dearest friends have become Judases that not only wanted my life, but wanted to tear apart the church. It has been lonely work until one of my greatest friends counted the cost and flew overseas, learned the language, learned the culture, spent five years laboring to come and be an assistant with us, and we were just about to have him be a co-elder, and he was diagnosed with cancer, and many of you went to his funeral this last April. Our family has suffered illness. We know all of our doctors by name. Loneliness, opposition, hatred, rejection, disappointment, and more. But God. Spurgeon said this, I have learned to kiss the waves of God that crash me upon the rock of ages. God has sustained us. He has kept our love for the church, for our enemies, for our city, for my wife, for my children, for the lost. And in and through all of the suffering has worked in us a deep dependence on him that is more precious to us than gold or comfort or treasures, not despite the suffering, but in and through it. He has put us through the fire so that our faith could be tested and all of our self-reliance be wiped away like the dross. I've asked this question many times, why does God want us to go through all of these hardships and sufferings and loneliness and to leave our families and city and culture and comfort and Walmart <laughs> One, because God wants to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Amen. And he's ransomed a people for himself. And he sent those to go herald the gospel. And two, because he loves us. Because he loves me and my wife and my children. Because he knows what we need to remove all the second bests that we are so satisfied with and give us more of himself. Jesus is planting his church 
in our hearts and in our souls, but also in our city. This is the good suffering that Christ has called us to. And this is the suffering that we should even rejoice in when we gain it. I have shared very vague and gone into no details about any of the hundreds of stories that we've actually walked through, but I did want to have my wife share some specific details of some of the stories, one of the stories of which we went through. Um, I'll share a little bit more personally. Uh, I have had three miscarriages. Um, my first was after Eliza was, that's our daughter, she was one years old, and I was 14 weeks along. And I remember when my water broke, um, there was this deep confusion, and my body began to go through normal labor, and yet at the end, it was without the joy, without the joy of, of holding your baby. And I remember... Um, feeling really confused, just honestly, feeling really confused as to why, when my husband and I wanted children, why the Lord would allow this dynamic of suffering and losing our child. And afterward, my, my deep comfort was in the Psalms, in the mercies of the Lord, in understanding that he comforts the brokenhearted. And he so graciously drew near to lift our head and looking back, I see the intricate nature of how he was at work, why he allowed that suffering, our first miscarriage, to challenge us personally, to press into the word, to wean my own heart from the love of the world, and to bring me on my knees in a place of prayer and ask the question, who is God? Who is he? What is he like? Um, my second miscarriage was when we were in Turkey. Um, it was our first year. Our team of 50 plus people uh, had left. Um, and David and my family were there. And my father had passed away after battling through dementia. And this pregnancy it was a little bit traumatic. It was a partial molar pregnancy. And my body again, after the miscarriage, began going through the process of providing for a baby that, that wasn't there, that I couldn't hold. And that grief was so deep and so real. And yet the grace of God was so much deeper. It's not a side thing. Re he really is everything as a comforter and near, um, causing and working through the losses and the pains so that I would lean and cleave to him alone and he was and is ever faithful to sustain and keep us. Um, it, it was easy for me to get offended. It was easy. Um, and yet, and yet, but God, again. Uh, my third miscarriage was, again, just at another difficult time for our church. Um, there was a dear brother that had served with us and was drawing others from the church to start something else and... I remember going into the doctor. I was 22 weeks, and I remember getting the ultrasound, and there was no heartbeat. And it was just that moment of, Lord, you're here. I know you're here. You're in this. You're not going to leave us. You're not going to forsake us. Um, we had to travel this time. The miscarriage was much more complex, much more traumatic. 
Um, they wanted us to go to a different city because of uh, blood loss and fears. And I remember that drive so well, crying out to Christ that maybe I couldn't hold on to him, but he faithfully was holding on to me. Mm. And that miscarriage was quite complex. There was hemorrhaging. They had given me overdose of medication. And I remember being frantically wheeled through the hospital and they were having to give me an emergency C-section. And I remember saying goodbye to David. And I remember praying, Lord, I trust you. It's not my will. It's your will. It's not my strength. It's your strength. It's not me. It's you. And they had didn't have enough blood through that surgery, um, but I remember waking up in the hospital room just in so much pain and yet so thankful, so thankful for the kindness of the Lord. He didn't owe me that. I didn't deserve that. But he, by his mercy and his grace, granted me to wake up. And there's a quote by Elizabeth Elliot um, that I love, and it says, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. Mm. And I, for one, am so grateful for that 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 Christ-likeness is the joy. That's the hope. That's that eternal glory. And it says, uh, in John, it says, um, in this world we will have troubles, but take heart. We can take heart. He has overcome the world. Amen. Thank you, guys. This has just been the, in closing, this has just been one of the greatest encouragements to us in that section of scripture in John 16, right before he says, take heart. He actually tells his disciples that they're gonna go through suffering and sorrow and hardship. But right before that, he says, uh, it will be like a woman in labor. But then he promises, not a miscarriage, but any suffering that's for Christ's name's sake, there will, he gives a guarantee there will be a joy in the end. And he says, and this joy will never be taken from you. Mm. And so Christ has never wasted our suffering. Mm. Thank you, guys. So let me close by reading the very first verse of the passage that we've been going through. Hebrews 12 and 3. Consider him, Jesus Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Where is Jesus in your suffering? He's suffering. He suffered for you. He suffers with you. Consider him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the goodness of grace. Father, thank you for loving discipline that shapes us, points us in the right direction, forms us into the image of your dear son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the strength to our knees. You are what gives strength to our hands. You are what gives endurance to our hearts. So Lord, would you encourage us to stay faithful, to stand fast and to hold tightly to your love tonight when things get hard. We just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. David and Monica are gonna be out in the foyer if you guys wanna visit with them more about the work there or just follow up. Uh, but again, thank you guys for being here. God bless you. Have a good weekend.